What is up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Rewired Soul podcast. And I am so, so excited for today's conversation. I am talking with Brian Earp about his book that he co-authored called Love Drugs and is such such a phenomenal book. So who is Brian? Brian is one smart dude, all right? And he's so passionate about his research and his work. But but yeah, he's he's a, a, a bioethicist, a philosopher, and an interdisciplinary researcher. And he is affiliated with both like Yale and Oxford and all sorts of stuff. Like he knows his stuff and this book is incredible. So Something that, you know, I know a lot of us can relate to, no matter who you are, no matter who you are, the great equalizer is love and relationships and all of that. And just, you know, a little little quick backstory about your buddy, Chris, for those of you who are new and, you know, you, you haven't been around for a while and all that. But yeah, I, I struggled with relationships for uh, uh, most of my life, right? And, you know, uh, I, I've seen how relationships affect people they can, you know, they can make you or they break you, right? Like think about some of, you know, your your biggest bouts of uh, depression and things like that. You know, a lot of them come from breakups and relationships. I, I remember, you know, breaking up with my high school sweetheart and all that. But anyways, um, Brian's book, Love Drugs, it's it's not just about love and relationships, but it's it's opening up the conversation about, you know, uh, some of the research that's going on when it comes to, using uh, medicine or even drugs like uh, mushrooms or MDMA when it comes to love and relationships. So in this, uh, in this conversation, we talk about, you know, the book and some of the, some of the different research that's being done when it comes to, you know, um, people who struggle with PTSD from, you know, because they're an assault victim and how do they cope with relationships and can different drugs or medications help. We also talk about, you know, people with depression and some of the side effects of these SSRIs and things like that. So it's a really, really excellent book. And I, I, I had a great time uh, asking Brian these questions and hearing what he had to say and all that. So, so yeah, it was, it was great. But anyways, before I get started, just real quick, real quick, for those of you who are new, if you haven't yet, if you're listening on Apple, make sure you subscribe to the podcast. And if you like it, if you like it at the end, rate it, review it, let me know what you think. But anyways, uh, since this is a new, newer podcast, this really helps like the, the, the podcast app, uh, algorithms on Apple, or if you follow it on Spotify, it helps tell, you know, Apple or Spotify, Hey, I like this. Other people might like this and it helps distribute it out there. But another way you can help support the podcast is just share the episode on social media. Like I know, I know for a fact that you got a friend, you got a friend who's in a terrible relationship and they might need to hear this conversation that I'm having with Brian. So share, share this episode over on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or, or whatever, whatever social media platform tickles your fancy. All right. But anyways, without further ado, here's my conversation with Brian Earp talking about his book, Love Drugs. Hey, Brian, hope you're doing well today. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast to discuss the book, 
love drugs. So let's kick this thing off. I want to talk about uh, early on in, in the book, and one of the earlier chapters, I think it was, you discuss monogamy and the evolutionary psychology behind pair bonds, right? And it, it sounds like it's advantageous for humans to be committed in their relationships with just one person, but something that I've noticed, and maybe it's just because I'm, you know, from Las Vegas, who knows, but uh, I've noticed that there's like this growing popularity with uh, polyamory. So when I, when I see, you know, like my friends or, you know, whoever it is getting in polyamorous relationships, it doesn't seem like they often work out, like, like we're just not wired for it. So my question for you, um, do you think poly relationships can work? And, you know, why or why not? And do you have any advice for people who want to try uh, a polyamorous relationship or are currently in one to help them, you know, fight the evolutionary <laughs> psychology behind why these things typically don't work? I guess what I would say here is that there's really a range of dispositions that humans have with respect to monogamy versus polyamory. There's a trait called sociosexuality, which can be measured. And people who score high on this trait tend to be open to multiple partners. They tend to think positively about the idea of having sexual and emotional relationships with more than one person at a time. And those who score low on this trait seem to be perfectly happy in uh, monogamous relationships and they're content with one partner uh, with, with whom they uh, might uh, parent in the case of um, people who want children and uh, they'll kind of put their eggs in one basket. And so I wouldn't say that there's one underlying human nature. In fact, I think the chapter you might be referring to is called Human Natures with an S on the end, precisely to, to point out that when we're thinking about these things, we shouldn't be satisfied with a one-size-fits-all model. Um, you know, in your question is, is embedded this idea that, that basically, you know, we're, we're wired up to be monogamous. But um, I think that people could, could equally say that there's some problems and limitations with that view. I mean, one of the leading causes of divorce uh, today is affairs, basically, extramarital sex. And so if, if, you know, all of us were happy being in um, sexually exclusive relationships with one person year after year, then you wouldn't find uh, uh, this kind of behavior being as common as it is. So, um, yeah, in the, in the book, basically, we're just trying to acknowledge that when we're thinking about what should our relationship values be, if we're thinking about uh, intervening in our relationships with biotechnology or in any other way, we have to have some sense of what What's the goal? What's the normative framework within which we're having this conversation? And we didn't want to be prescriptive and say, you know, a successful relationship is a sexually exclusive monogamous relationship that lasts until one or both partners dies. We wanted to say that's one model of a successful relationship that certainly will work for a lot of people. And there are some people who are, as it were, naturally disposed to favor that kind of relationship. But we shouldn't forget that human sexual and relational dispositions fall on a spectrum like so many other traits. And there are some people for whom the most natural arrangement for them in terms of their deep-seated feelings and uh, what would make them happiest in the long run if they were socially supported would be um, 
you know, a, a polyamorous arrangement. And, um, you know, there's not as, as, as many uh, role models in society or, or storylines that you can follow to sort of see what, how does that work out? What are the rules? But, uh, you know, there, there's growing interest, as you point out, and subcultures that are sort of practicing different ways of making that work. And, um, and so, you know, it takes practice to figure out how to successfully uh, operate under that relationship model, just like it takes practice to figure out how to have successful monogamous relationships. Ah, uh, yeah, I, I see what you're saying. And that, that does make sense. And I, I could see how that kind of varies from person to person. You bring up an excellent point, too, about, you know, if, if we were purely wired for monogamous relationships, why are there so many, you know, divorces and, you know, cheating and people, you know, just leaving their significant other for someone else. And yeah, that's all, that's all really uh, interesting to me. And something I've, I've, you know, uh, thought about, especially when I got sober and I was looking at, you know, uh, the, the fourth step in 12 step programs where they talk about, you know, um, taking a personal inventory. And I, I realized it's kind of, you know, uh, subjectivity to all of it. And it depends on who the person is, right? It depends on what a specific person is looking for. If somebody doesn't want a commitment and they want to, you know, be with multiple people or whatever, like in my personal opinion, as long as they're being honest with whoever they're, you know, with or seeing or sleeping with, like, Hey, you know, good for them. There's nothing, you know, immoral about that. But yeah, I think, I think you bring up an interesting point too, that we don't have enough models to really see what will make it successful and who knows like i might have like uh, uh, a certain <laughs> a certain narrow scope from people who i've seen experiment with these relationships i'm sure there are plenty of uh uh successful ones and and yeah just from my experience it it would seem it seems to me this is just my my theory uh it seems that you know jealousy and things like that just they're, they're, they inevitably come into play and you know one or both people wanted to try it but you know their their tendency for you know that that wanting of a commitment and catching feelings and all that kind of stuff it it kind of um interrupts the whole polyamorous idea but but that kind of leads me to my next question there was there was something really interesting that uh that you talked about in the book and it was this relationship between uh, obsessive compulsive disorder and jealousy. So there, there's a ton of people out there who, who recognize their jealous tendencies. But as you discuss, for some people, it's this kind of like uncontrollable urge to constantly be checking on their significant other or their spouse. And in, in some cases, they're, you know, uh, jealous of somebody that they're just kind of courting in the relationship. They're not even like officially dating. But anyways, if someone is prone to jealousy and or obsessive compulsive disorder um, or just, you know, behaviors, what are some steps they can take to begin working on their issues with, uh, with jealousy? One of the points that we raised in the book is that obsessive compulsive disorder and jealousy have some overlapping symptoms, um, including the one you mentioned, which is this, this tendency to check uh, and recheck, you know, so in the case of OCD, it might be that you keep checking whether you 
locked your car door, you know, 10 different times before you're satisfied and then you move on. And similarly, in the case of jealousy, you might check and recheck whether your partner was where they said they would be, when they said they'd be there and who were they with. And you, you, you're not really satisfied until you've gone through this loop uh, a number of times in your, in your mind. And there's, there's some neuroscientific work suggesting that at the level of the brain and neurochemistry, there's potentially some overlap between these things as well. So, uh, there's, there's some evidence that, um, the way that serotonin works in the brain, if there, you have depleted levels of serotonin, this can uh, cause this kind of obsessive um, tendencies, both in the case of OCD and in the case of jealousy. And so from a drug-based perspective, uh, it's been proposed that serotonin-enhancing drugs like selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors or SSRIs, which are also used to treat depression, but they're they're used in the case of OCD as well, ideally in in combination with uh, cognitive behavioral therapy. So if, if your jealousy is like a really serious problem for the relationship to the point where it's, it's threatening the ability of you and your partner to have a flourishing connection together and you want to work on it, there's all sorts of things you can try to do kind of in, in, on your own. Um, and, uh, one of them is to just be aware of the fact that you're, you're behaving in an obsessive way and that you're putting your relationship at risk. And you might want to think about, um, what the underlying issues are with trust in the relationship um, and, and, and try to deal with those directly. And if it really gets out of hand and you find that you've tried other things and it doesn't work, it might very well be the sort of thing you'd want to talk about with a therapist and they'd probably work with you uh, with cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, and then, you know, in the book, we discuss a case study of a psychiatrist who went further than that and the jealousy was so extreme in the case of this particular man um, that they, uh, the psychiatrist combined uh, cognitive behavioral therapy with um, a serotonin affecting drug uh, so as to try to a address this problem with a, a one-two punch. And uh, it seemed to be successful in, the, in this case study that we analyzed. Um, but there's not a, a whole lot of research on treating jealousy uh, with medication more systematically. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And by the way, by the way, you know, now that we're, you know, <laughs> just finishing up the second question, I'd even write down some more questions that I'm just now thinking of in the middle of this, this interview, but everybody listening, everybody listening, go, go get, go get love drugs. I, I've mentioned it. I'm going to mention it again at the end, but it's linked down in the description, but, but yeah, uh, you, you discuss, you know, these kind of, you know, combinations between like, you know, uh, CBT and SSRIs or medications, but you know, as the title suggests, love drugs, like that was just, I, I don't know. I've, I've, I've spent years, uh, you know, studying uh, mental health and, you know, uh, I'm somebody who takes mental health medications. Uh, I'm on an SSRI and things like that. And, and your book was the, the first book that I came across that is really talking about, you know, our relationships and how certain medications and things like that, you know, may, may affect it. But, but yeah, it's, it's really interesting um, just from you know my experience and experience of you know people in my life who uh you know have been in relationships and you know when jealousy comes up and everything and you know i i see that there's it, it seems that we're kind of in this i don't know we get into this place where it's hard to address and become self-aware and we want to like we're willing to admit you know we're jealous which then leads us to that next step of reaching out and getting help from whether it's uh you know, just our, our, our doctor or psychiatrist or, you know, even going to therapy. That was the biggest thing that helped me with my relationships was 
realizing like, wait, 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 like, you know, I, I've been, you know, dating, you know, since I was a, a teenager and I can't, you know, it, it wouldn't make sense to blame everything on every girl I've ever dated. Like at, at what point am I the problem? And, you know, I had to swallow some pride and realize like I had to look at myself and, you know, sometimes it is mental health stuff. Like while I don't personally suffer from OCD, uh, you know, uh, through a lot of therapy and things like that, uh, you know, the the working theory is that a lot of things, you know, from my childhood and things like that have messed up, you know, my trust issues and attachment issues. But but anyways, we're, we'll, we'll move past that. But anyway, if you're listening to this, get the book, go to therapy, check some stuff out. <laughs> but Brian uh, offers a, a, a ton of interesting research and studies in the book. But anyways, anyways, moving on to the uh, the next question. So So like millions of other people around the world, uh, as I mentioned, you know, I, I've, I've struggled with, uh, you know, mental health issues most of my life. Uh, I have a generalized anxiety disorder. Um, I've struggled with depression. I'm currently on an SSRI, as I mentioned. And, you know, medications have worked wonders for me. But something that you discuss a little bit in the book, and it's something that I've noticed, like, you know, when I talk to people and I ask, you know, guys, and, hey, have you tried medications? Uh Unfortunately, a lot of these medications, they have these side effects that can include lowering your libido, and it, it seems like that's one of the main reasons, aside from just, you know, not wanting to, you know, open up and admit they have depression, but it seems like one of the main reasons that men, in particular, stay away from antidepressant medications, and yeah, you, you make some great points in the book about how sometimes a lowered libido is actually beneficial for some men. So in your opinion, what are your thoughts on that, that trade-off between being depressed or having a low libido? And, you know, based on your research and everything like that, uh, are there any solutions for men who need antidepressants, but they're worried about these types of side effects? So you're right that uh, a low libido is a common side effect of SSRIs, these antidepressants we've been talking about um, that work on the serotonin system. And uh, in some studies, uh, the estimates are as high as 20%. Uh, other studies have a, a, a bit of a lower percentage, but in any case, it's a common frequent side effect. And for people who uh, have a, a strong desire to to have a sexual aspect to their romantic relationship, which is very common. Maybe most people in a romantic relationship would like there to be a sexual component, unless perhaps the one or both partners is asexual. Um, and, and so it can be devastating for a relationship to, to, to lose the more visceral uh, drive to, to want to be with your partner sexually. Um, in the book, we try to just make the point that we shouldn't normalize or pathologize any particular level of libido across the board because it depends on the values and the needs that are present for any given couple. So in some cases, one partner might have a very strong libido and the other partner might have a naturally lower libido. And, and in some couples, this mismatch can create quite a lot of tension. And so we, we propose this, this hypothetical case where uh, a person might be taking uh, a drug to treat depression or, or anxiety, let's say. And they might be taking a drug that, that isn't one of these SSRIs, but is a different type of drug. So we uh, talk about, I think, NDRIs, which are norepinephrine 
uh, dopamine uh, reuptake inhibitors. And these, these tend not to have uh, the same kind of sexual side effects. So I think the, one of the trade names is bupropion or, uh, uh, well, butrin is the, is the trade name. Bupropion is the name of this drug. And th so suppose you're taking this drug to treat your depression and it's not lowering your libido, um, but you're in a situation where actually maybe you would like to have a lower libido. You know, let's suppose that your partner has tried to raise their libido by, by whatever means to try to, to, to meet your level and all those methods haven't, haven't worked. Well, one possibility is, you know, you ask your doctor, can I switch from this drug I'm taking to treat depression that doesn't have side effects, the NDRI, uh, to, doesn't have sexual side effects, I should say, to an SSRI, which at least has a decent chance of lowering your libido. And suppose that you take this drug and it works and you're, you know, you still have some libido, but it's lower than it was before. And maybe it's similar to your partners and in some way you're now synced up and you can imagine anyway, hypothetically, how that could improve uh, this particular relationship. So we're not suggesting that that's generally the case. And when you talk about trade-offs, you know, between dealing with depression, taking a drug, whether that's something that's going to work for you or not, and, you know, potential effects on your sex life, it's going to be a case-by-case -case analysis where you have to think, you know, what really are the side effects for you of this particular drug? Um, have you tried non-drug mediated ways of dealing with problems, whether it's depression or problems in your relationship? And then how do you, how do you see those trade-offs play out for you and your partner? And, you know, the broader theme of the book that we're just trying to raise is when we take drugs for depression or for other uh, issues in psychiatry, we shouldn't just be thinking about how these drugs affect our symptoms of depression, let's say. We should be thinking about the effects of these drugs more generally on our social relationships, including our romantic partnerships. And a sort of obvious case here is that, uh, you know, SSRIs are known to have a pretty high chance of negatively affecting libido, or lowering libido, I should say. Um, but they can also have effects on higher level processes, like the extent to which you might um, be inclined to care about your partner's feelings. And so that's something where there's a bunch of case studies suggesting that that happens in some cases, but it's not systematically studied. And so we think if we're going to continue to prescribe these powerful drugs that can affect our, our sex drive, that can affect our emotional life, we have to be alert to the, to the side effects on relationships, not just uh, on individuals. And then, and then when, when we do that, we have to then couch those side effects within a, a value structure that applies to a given relationship and decide whether having a higher or a lower libido is better or worse for that particular couple if that's one of the, the likely uh, effects of the drug. And so then you, you take all of that into account when making a decision about whether you want to take a drug to address depression or whether in some cases it might not be worth it given the negative side effects for your relationship. I, I love it. I love it. That was so well said and yeah the, you know based on my personal experience you know dealing with my own mental health issues working in a treatment center and you know uh talking with a lot of people who come to me and ask me about this you know uh i i you know i, I don't have anywhere near the, <laughs> the credentials uh that you do but yeah I, I i let people know like it's it's case by case it's based on our own experience and for me personally what's really helped uh, in all aspects of, you know, uh, my mental health and just my life and everything like that is asking questions and doing research and following up, you know, as, as somebody who, you know, in my, in my active addiction, I was terrible. I was terrible about being transparent with doctors and letting them know how I was doing, how I was feeling, how, you know, on the follow-ups and, and all that kind of stuff. 
And now, like, it is one of the most important things where I'm open, I'm honest, I, I talk about, you know, the, 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 the pros and the cons, right? Uh, especially, especially when it comes to medications. But, and I'm, I'm no therapist, right? But, you know, uh, the relationship that, you know, I'm currently in, uh, you know, I've been in, uh, with my lovely girlfriend for, you know, uh, over four years now. And one reason I believe our relationship works is because we have this very open line of communication, right? Like we, we, like I, I talk, tell her about, you know, my doctor just prescribed me, you know, some Prozac and, you know, <laughs> and, uh, you know, if I'm starting to act weird or different, let me know because I might not recognize it and, and things like that. And we're very open and honest and discuss our, our, uh, our mental health, you know, and that's really important to me. Um, because I, I believe like you're saying, you know, um, it, it depends on the relationship. It depends on what's going on. And and for me personally, something that's just been crucial is that that open line of communication. I had to get past you know the you know, the embarrassing conversations or awkward conversations or whatever. You know we're we're in this. You know we're in this. We're all in this together. You know what I mean? Uh, well, not all of us, unless <laughs> unless we go back to the polyamorous all stuff. Oh, but anyways, anyways, moving on, moving on. Um, so. So yeah, so uh, I'm coming up uh, on nine years sober this month, June 23rd. Not to toot my own horn, but it's pretty sweet. Um, but, but anyways, uh, so so the book it's it's love drugs, right? And it talks a lot about drugs and you know uh, not only you know like SSRIs and stuff like that that we're talking about, but also uh, psychedelics and things, right? And you know people are often surprised, but. Even though I've been 100% abstinent from alcohol and drugs for, you know, coming up on nine years, I'm very pro-legalization. And I've seen the research and the studies and how beneficial, like, uh, you know, uh, psychedelics like psilocybin can be for all sorts of different uh, mental health issues. But anyways, when I, when I look at this stuff and I read about it and learn about it, I think back to my my many 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 relapses, and a lot of them started with a natural drug, right? Like 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 pot, like marijuana. Uh, I would use that, and then you know it would just make me want to go get high off my uh, drug of choice, which was prescription opioids. Um, but yeah, uh, again, like psychedelics, like we know that they could be very very helpful. But you know, me personally, I don't you know really think that I would ever try psychedelics, even though I'm a hundred percent for the legalization. It's one of those things like, you know, if, even though I can't take it, I, I see the benefits for uh, other people. So based on your research, uh, can you discuss some of the findings for how psychedelics can, you know, improve relationships just so, you know, people can be a little bit better informed and kind of like we just talked about, they can weigh, you know, the pros and cons for themselves? Sure. So, um, you know, there was some research back in the 1970s and 1980s where couples counselors would use psychedelics like psilocybin from magic mushrooms, or they might use MDMA, which is the active ingredient in ecstasy. MDMA isn't really a psychedelic because it acts differently on the brain, but sometimes people think of these drugs uh, all in one group. But um, in, in either case, whether it was MDMA-enhanced couples counseling or psilocybin-enhanced couples counseling, what, uh, what some people were finding in these early therapeutic sessions, and mostly this is a, a series of case studies, you don't have too much systematic research back in the 1980s, 
um, but therapists would report on their, their experiences working with clients. And what they found is that, you know, uh, for a lot of people, there are certain things in their relationship that they know they want to work on, but they can't bring themselves to really talk about it productively with their partner. For example, they might be stuck in a loop there where there's, you know, the same grudges are repeated year after year, or, you know, you're just so used to your partner acting a certain way and you respond in a certain way and you're caught in this unproductive cycle where you can't really hear your partner with, with, uh, fresh ears, <laughs> you know, you, you're almost just drowning them out with, with your defense mechanisms or whatever it might be. And if you're in this kind of situation, but you, but you really, both of you feel that there's something in, in the relationship worth preserving and you want to try to improve your connection and you've tried talk therapy and it hasn't seemed to work for you. One possibility is that, uh, under the influence of these drugs in a therapeutic setting, first of all, some of those defense mechanisms might be temporarily disarmed so that you find yourself uh, responding in a, a more reflective way where it's not so automatic stimulus response. You may be able to hear your partner in a new way and look at them with fresh eyes and maybe remember uh, how you felt when you first met them. So some people reported that they they felt uh, after these therapeutic sessions with uh, MDMA that they felt like they were 16 again and just falling in love with their partner, partly because uh, you know, what some of these drugs can do, at least what the current theories are suggesting, is that they, they sort of wash out old habits and patterns that have become ossified in your mind. So uh, they, they sort of depress some of your uh, prior beliefs and concepts and allow you to take in information and, and categorize it less uh, rigidly. Uh, and, and you can look at it from a new perspective and sort of decide now whether you want to create some new categories in your mind for how you think about your partner or think about the dynamics between you. Um, in the case of MDMA, uh, partly what it does also is it temporarily suppresses a, a hair trigger fear response, which can come up in the case of trauma. So right now they're doing these trials looking at uh, MDMA enhanced psychotherapy for people with post-traumatic stress disorder that haven't been able to uh, treat their their symptoms with other uh, methods, although they've they've tried them and, and they haven't succeeded. And uh, for people with treatment depressant uh, treatment resistant post traumatic stress disorder, um, what they're finding so far is pretty promising results. Where um, instead of shutting down when when they're asked to talk about the the trauma that they've been suppressing, um, they they don't have that immediate fear response under the influence of this drug. And so they're able to kind of approach the trauma and work on it with a therapist. And, and that alone can have very positive effects for relationships in, in, in the sense that PTSD can be very damaging to relationships. And so if you find a successful treatment for it, then it's, it's not going to be good just for you, but it might be good for your relationships as well. And uh, very recently now they've, they've uh, done some preliminary trials with couples that are more rigorous than, than what was done in the 1980s. Now that there's this sort of renaissance of looking at psychedelic medicine where one of the partners uh, has PTSD, but the other may not. And then both of them will uh, undergo drug assisted psychotherapy and work on various things in the relationship, including, including the PTSD. But a point that we raise in the book is that, you know, trauma falls on a spectrum. Not everybody has meets all the clinical criteria for getting an official diagnosis, but sometimes relationships themselves can have aspects of trauma that have come up over the years. Um, and and so uh, there's there's some reason to think that people with subclinical 
difficulties in their lives and relationships um, might also benefit from these kinds of drug-assisted psychotherapies. And so we propose that uh, more systematic research go, go into that question. Yeah, abs- absolutely. And it's something like the older I get, the, the, the more, you know, just it, it blows my mind, right? Uh, throughout my life, I, I've known so many people, so many people who, who have PTSD from some sort of trauma. And, and a lot of it is, you know, sexual assault. And when I started working in a treatment center, you know, uh, with with people trying to you know overcome their their you know drug or alcohol addictions like so so many people have been assaulted and they struggle with ptsd but you know not only is this a major 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 issue but the thing is is that you know it it can have these lasting effects that affect your relationships right like for the rest of for the rest of your life and that's one of the reasons why i'm such a huge advocate for you know various types of therapy just to work on ptsd but i i love that you know you're you're discussing these things about you know what the research is showing about how pe- uh, people who struggle with PTSD and it might be affecting their relationship. Like they're they're looking into this. They're they're researching it. They're you know there there might be solutions, and that's why I, I recommend people you know check out your book. It covers so many things, and and yeah, like uh, I, I I've I've had friends, I've known people, I've had you know clients I, I worked with where their relationships were either struggling or they ended because of their traumatic experience. But one thing, one thing, I, I want to toss this in here. Uh, aside from, you know, telling everybody how amazing your book is, I'm also linking Brian's Twitter down in the description below. Like, this guy, he he shares so many studies on Twitter. So, like, if you're a nerd like me and you want to hear about the latest and greatest studies, like, in all sorts of different categories, like, not just, you know, uh, uh, you know, like, uh, studies on, like, you know, psychedelics and MDMA and things like that, but, like, he, he just he, he shares so many interesting studies and I, I love it. I absolutely love it. So make sure you're following Brian uh, over on Twitter. I have his uh, link down below. But yeah, real quick, I wanted to piggyback off that last question. So, so for, for someone like you who, who's into all these studies and researches this stuff, what are your thoughts around the current state of America drug policies? Because it seems like more and more states are leaning towards legalizing marijuana. Like uh, here in uh, Nevada, where I'm from, we legalized it, you know, four years ago. There's like dispensaries now and they get taxed and some of that comes back to the, you know, the state, the city and, and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, we saw in the recent 2020 elections, more and more states started uh, either decrim- uh, decriminalizing or legalizing and stuff like that. But anyways, from your from your point of view, where do you see, you know, the United States in the next 10 years when it comes to drug policy, not just, you know, legalization for recreational use, but like we're talking about for, you know, medicinal purposes and treating, you know, mental health disorders like depression or PTSD. What are your, what are your thoughts on that? So there's, there's basically a consensus among drug researchers that uh, the prohibition of drugs, the war on drugs is more harmful than uh, the the kinds of harms that it's supposed to be helping with by supposedly preventing people from taking drugs that are thought to have all these bad side effects. 
Um, so although, you know, drug researchers acknowledge that there are some drugs that can be misused or overused and you don't want to necessarily have all drugs accessible to anyone at all times, um, prohibiting drugs and, and driving drug use underground and creating these illegal markets uh, just exacerbates the harms, makes things on balance much worse than if the drugs weren't uh, prohibited in, in this way and were instead either decriminalized or legally regulated in the way that we legally regulate alcohol. I mean, alcohol is far more dangerous than a lot of the currently prohibited drugs, uh, certainly more dangerous than psilocybin and more dangerous than marijuana. Um, and yet we know what happened with, pro with prohibition of alcohol. I mean, the, you know, the mafia being created and so forth. And so we should have already learned that lesson and we learned it to an extent with, with uh, alcohol. But some of the other drugs that have been listed as these prohibited substances, I mean, there's a long history of very politically troubling reasons for doing this. You know, opium was associated with uh, Chinese immigrants and uh, some initial um, banning of uh, opium was motivated by, by explicitly racist desires to sort of stigmatize a drug that was popular with uh, those groups. Um, you know, uh, the association with uh, Mexicans and marijuana is part of what's going on there. And then, you know, you see black Americans, especially uh, younger men, being disproportionately arrested and in incarcerated for using drugs at a similar rate to white people. And so in the way that the, the so-called war on drugs has been prosecuted has some, some really troubling uh, racist implications as well. And so it's, it's, it's just a bad policy. And everybody knows it's a bad policy, at least anybody who's an expert in this area and has studied it. And that's been known for something like 40 years. What's interesting is that over the last five years or maybe 10 years is that you're starting to see a wider swath of the political spectrum and people in different different uh, positions of power who hold the levers for potentially making changes to policies are are waking up to this fact. They're just realizing that the war on drugs is a totally failed policy. And the question now is, what what should we do instead? And there's basically two main moves that people will make here. Some people say you should adopt what's called the Portugal model, which is where you decriminalize the personal use and possession of small quantities of so-called recreational drugs, all of, all of the drugs that are currently um, prohibited, um, uh, like psychedelic drugs, but also heroin and uh, cocaine. And uh, the idea here is that you, you ramp up funding for, for healthcare measures for people who are dealing with medical problems or addiction related to drug use, but you just take this out of the, the criminal field where you're not arresting people and putting them in jail simply for using drugs if they're not directly harming other people by, you know, through assault or robbery or whatever it is. Um, but you don't fully legalize these drugs. You don't make it so that, uh, you know, someone uh, can go to a pharmacy and, and pick up, uh, I don't know, a dose of cocaine, let's say. Um, and then on the other side of things, you have people who are proposing a, a, a fuller legal regulation where basically all so-called recreational drugs would be legally available under certain conditions for personal use. Um, and so you're seeing something approaching this model in the state of Oregon, which just in the last year, I believe, passed an ordinance to uh, make uh, psychedelic drugs, at least, I believe, legally available in a, a sort of um, licensed setting where there would be a trained guide or therapist who would administer and oversee the use of the drug. But it wouldn't be uh, just for medical purposes. It wouldn't be that you have to have some diagnosed thing that's being treated with the use of the drug, but rather it would be uh, uh, usable for, I don't know, personal enhancement or personal development or exploration of non-ordinary states of consciousness. 
And the point is just that people are doing these things anyway, but the way that they're sourcing their drugs now is from illegal markets. And so the idea is prohibition doesn't make drug use go away, it just makes it more dangerous. And if you can find a way to make these drugs available under, under circumscribed settings so that perhaps you have to have a, demonstrate a certain amount of competence and knowledge in how to use the drug safely, for example, or, or you use it in a licensed setting like in the Oregon model, then the idea is that you know, mostly the same people who would be interested in using these drugs would continue to use them, but they would you know, be able to use them under safer conditions. Um, there's, there's some debate that maybe people who otherwise wouldn't be using drugs might use them if they became legally regulated in this way. And uh, some people are concerned that the, this use could, could um, you know, be uh, harmful in some cases if people weren't using the drugs in a safe way. Um, but, you know, so far the evidence from at least the Portugal situation is that with decriminalization, you don't see a huge spike of, of new use of drugs from people who otherwise wouldn't be using them. So, you know, one way or another, whether it's through decriminalization uh, with harm reduction measures and, and increased expenditure on health care, uh, for, for dealing with addiction and so forth, uh, or a fully legally regulated model of drug use. The point is that it's just kind of crazy to be locking people up for simply using drugs if they're not harming others, if they're not violating other people's rights, and that insofar as there are harms to the misuse of drugs, these should be addressed through through healthcare and social support services, not through criminalization, uh, especially given that the way the, the, the criminal... Um, uh, prosecution of these cases uh, is is done in a, a racially unjust way, um, and and you know in the the history of uh, the war on drugs had um, you know racist implications from the start, so that's kind of where where the conversation is now. I think in the next ten years there probably are going to be more states that adopt the Oregon model, and make at least some currently prohibited drugs available for uh, personal use. You know, I sometimes people call these recreational drugs, and I think in a way that's misleading. So let's say a person is using psilocybin. They, they're, I don't know, out in the woods and they take some mushrooms with their friends. Um, some people might do something like that for recreation, i.e. for fun. Um, but, you know, psychedelic drugs have been used in many cultures for spiritual development and for gaining real insights into how one's own mind works or how one relates to others or reevaluating one's own emotions and, and, and so forth. And so I think the, the, the label of recreational drugs implies that it's, it's just for, uh, for kicks, uh, which, you know, obviously many of these drugs are used that way uh, or for people going to parties and so forth. But drugs can be used for lots of different reasons, and they have been used historically and in many cultures still today for all sorts of reasons that, that might uh, seem more like personal enhancement or something like that. And so we should be alert to those, those possibilities. Brian, Brian, Brian. Brian is preaching right now. I love it. Like, yeah, like you said, this is, this is something that I, I don't know how many people understand this or, you know, uh, if, if they're you know, taking this knowledge into the voting booth, but, but the war on drugs was failed. Uh, so many of these policies were created with these kind of like racist ideologies and, you know, intentions to uh, discriminate and so, so many issues. And, and yeah, you know, something that I'm very passionate about is, you know, educating people and destigmatizing addiction and helping to educate people like, you know, addiction is you know this this sickness and like you said you 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 start funding 
uh, more uh, services, right? Whether it's, you know, detox centers, treatment centers, uh, even, you know, therapists and social workers and all these things, right? We, we rehabilitate people. But, but yeah, that, that's interesting that you, you know, you bring that up too about, you know, this, this kind of uh, way that we talk about them as, you know, recreational use when there's, there's so many, you know, medicinal, uh, medicinal benefits and people use it for, you know, spirituality and, and things like that. Like I mentioned earlier, you know, it's not something that I'm personally going to do just because my history with substance abuse and how I, you know, start with one and I, I go to something else. But for me as, you know, somebody sober and not planning on it, no matter how legal it gets, like, uh, you know, uh, the longer method that I found is, you know, through, through uh, meditation and things like that, right? But to, in my opinion, to everybody, you know, to each their own, if, you know, if you could do these and you're not going to go run out and, you know, get hooked on opioids, like, you know, someone like me, then, like, then uh, do your thing. But, but we do have this major issue. And, and yeah, based on, you know, everything I've, I've read and researched, you know, there are great benefits to uh, these kind of um, uh, experiences being done under uh, the guide of like, you know, a trained mental health professional. Some people, you know, go to other countries like, you know, and use like ayahuasca or, you know, other uh, uh, psychedelics. And it's with like a spiritual guide, you know, but, but yeah, I, I really, I, I really hope <laughs> that, uh, you know, the country moves in the right direction. I, I'm personally very optimistic about this, uh, in the next 10 years, I'm thinking like we're slowly, slowly seeing this stuff change. Um, so, so yeah, uh, I, I want to ask you this one, this one final question, um, one thing that, I, that I've noticed, and this is something that I just recently became uh, educated on as well, but a lot of people, the conventional wisdom around oxytocin is that it's the most wondrous, amazing neurotransmitter that we have, right? Like you hear about oxytocin and it brings us together and we love each other and we just want to cuddle and all these other things, right? But, you know, um, that's, that's, you know, the, the, typical story that we hear, but in, in your book, you discuss how there's also kind of this dark side to oxytocin, which I'm just now learning about. And, you know, it could negatively affect people, right? Uh, it can encourage bad behavior, especially in groups. So can you, can you explain just a little bit why this is, what, what can go wrong with oxytocin? And what are some ways that, people, the audience, me, everybody can kind of monitor whether our oxytocin is promoting good or bad behaviors so we can make better decisions to be a little bit more self-aware. So the dark side of oxytocin that some researchers have proposed is that uh, when it's uh, artificially administered through a, a nasal spray uh, and it sort of goes up past the blood-brain barrier and into the, into the brain, um, there's there's some evidence from these controlled experiments with economic games that um, people can either favor their in-group more when they're under the influence of this intranasal oxytocin, or they may have a sort of out-group prejudice that's enhanced. Sometimes these two results are kind of conflated and people aren't sure which is, which is really the finding. Um, I, I have two concerns about these these findings. The first is that a lot of the initial 
results from the oxytocin literature where you spray the substance up the participant's nose or they get a placebo uh, nasal spray. And then you have them engage in some sort of artificial task like a trust game or an economic game, often with an anonymous other person, um, where the, the effect of oxytocin is, is lasting for just as long as the, the experiment and then they, they leave the lab and you don't actually know what the long-term effects are, is that a lot of these initial results don't seem to replicate. Basically what will happen is uh, different laboratories will, will all run versions of the same experiment and maybe they don't quite get the effect that they anticipated on, on the first study. So they say, well, that's, let's call that a pilot study because maybe we need to tweak some aspect of the experimental design. And then they run it again or a different lab is running it. And you'll find that a subset of these experiments seem to show some kind of effect. And those are the ones that get published. And so in recent years, a number of leading oxytocin researchers have said, you know, let's actually look in our file drawer. Let's look at all the failed experiments that we've run. And, and include those in the meta-analyses and make sure that we really are looking at the full body of evidence. And what a lot of them are suggesting is that overall, it's not clear that there really is robust evidence for these kinds of effects, whether you know increasing in-group favoritism or, or increasing out-group prejudice of some kind. And so one, I'm not sure how robust these, these findings are. But another thing to think about is that we release oxytocin in our own brains all the time uh, for example, when we uh, engage in sensual touch with our partner, or we hug someone, or we, I don't know, look look at a dog. I mean, there's all sorts of things that we can do where we st stimulate the release of oxytocin within our own brains. And it might well be that when we're, uh, you know, having an orgasm uh, with our partner and you were flooding our brains with oxytocin, it might be that, you know, for the next uh, 20 minutes or so, we have a sort of in-group favoritism or, an, or increased out-group prejudice even. But no one would suggest that we shouldn't engage in sexual activity because it will increase oxytocin endogenously and, uh, and therefore might have these negative side effects. So, um, you know, unless you could show that spraying oxytocin up people's noses has somehow more extreme effects than the natural release of oxytocin that, that happens all the time through our behavior with others, um, it would just be strange to think that somehow we should uh, prohibit the use of that or be particularly worried about that. But then, as I say, a lot of the initial results that got people excited about the idea that oxytocin increases trust and bonding and eye contact and all that stuff, a lot of those initial results don't seem to replicate. And currently, the literature is kind of a, a shrug as to whether um, these results are going to hold up over time. So, so we, we need more evidence about whether um, oxytocin is as, as wondrous a molecule as uh, some people have proposed. Ah, yeah, the good old the good old replication crisis. Uh, I actually had uh, Stuart Ritchie uh, as as the first guest uh, on the podcast, and and yeah, that's when I first really realized. I didn't realize this was you know an issue with these oxytocin studies because I've heard about that with the oxytocin uh, nasal spray and things like that. And like you could, I think, I think, don't quote me on this. Uh, do your do your independent research, listeners. Uh, but uh, yeah, I think you could like buy some of this nasal spray. But who knows? It might even be a placebo. But but that's that's really interesting. Um, um, because yeah, we don't, we don't, if we don't know for sure, it's kind of like, Ugh. but yeah, I think, I think some of the research, uh, you know, I came across too, was talking about how, you know, during like, uh, uh, not necessarily like, uh, riots, right. But you know, when there's, uh, you know, uh, our in group is against their group or whatever oxytocin is, is flowing there too. So, 
So yeah, so for me, it's just kind of being more self-aware of, you know, I like to learn about crowd psychology and things like that and just try to, you know, be mindful and aware of, you know, just the whole, the whole idea of like tribalism and all that kind of stuff. Because to me, that is just, that is just one of, <laughs> it could be one of the best parts of human nature, or just like one of the worst. But, but uh, yeah, I, I, I appreciate you coming on. Uh, the podcast so much. I love your book so, so much. But yeah, uh, before I let you go, um, is there is there anything else uh, going on that you would like to tell the audience about or where they could find you or anything like that? Let, let us hear about it. Well, thank you for taking the time to ask these questions and inviting me onto your podcast. Um, thanks also for you know telling people about the book. We, we really uh, want to open this conversation up to a wider audience because there are a lot of difficult ethical and philosophical questions about what kind of world do we want to live in and do we want to have uh, neurochemical control over our love lives and you know what even is love and how does it relate to neurochemistry and these are the kinds of questions we talk about in the book but it needs to be a public conversation because these technologies are already here we're using uh, psychedelics in clinical trials right now, looking at PTSD and so forth, but those very same drugs have interpersonal effects. And so this is a call to a public conversation to decide how ethically we want to deal with these substances as we move forward. Um, and then to answer your question about uh, social media accounts and so forth, people can follow me on, on Twitter. My handle is Brian David Earp, E-A-R-P. Um, I, most of my papers are available on ResearchGate or academia.edu in, in case you want to read any of this stuff in more detail. Um, and the book Love Drugs is available on Amazon in the US and uh, in the UK it's called Love is the Drug, it has a slightly different title and it's there, it's published by Manchester University Press, but it's the same, uh, the same content. So you can check it out either of those places depending on where you are and over time, we're going to try to get the book into wider markets in different countries and so forth. So, yeah, thanks again for your questions. All right, everybody. There you have it. That was Brian Earp. And, and yeah, like I said, like I said, like I cannot praise this book enough. As many of you know, I, I read a ton and there is so much so much in this book and like Brian, you know, said in the closing right there, like it's it's to open up this this conversation about, you know, how much do we want uh, you know, uh, like drugs, medications, uh, you know, even psychedelics, like involved in, you know, love and relationships. Uh, what are the pros and cons? Like, I love these discussions around, you know, where we're headed and, you know, the ethical questions about it. I, I love hear, hearing from all of you and having, you know, these conversations, but it's very interesting. And throughout the book, they bring up a ton of you know, aside from the research, just interesting questions that we should ask ourselves because something I've realized is that, you know, a lot of people like, you know, relationships are a major part of their life and they can either, you know, <laughs> just they either complete you or they, you know, really hurt you and, and mess you up. So, so, so many good conversations. So make sure you grab a copy of the book. So uh, yeah, everything that we were just talking about the book, it will be linked down in the description as well as Brian's Twitter down in the description below. And like I said, he is constantly sharing interesting new studies and research so if you're into that stuff like make sure you're following him um yeah he's always talking about cool interesting stuff and sharing cool news i love it um but yeah anyways uh that's all we got uh for this episode but before i let you go if if you enjoy what i'm doing here just once again reminding you 
a few ways you could support the podcast, all right? We're still a, a brand new baby little podcast. We were trying to get the word out. So a great way to uh, help us out uh, is, you know, by, if you're listening on Apple, subscribe to the podcast. You subscribe, Apple's like, oh man, people are subscribing to this podcast. We want to share it with everybody, right? But another way is to rate it and review it. I'm not going to sit here and tell you to leave the best review ever. You don't have to unless you want to. But I, I do look at, uh, you know, the reviews and take in feedback and all that kind of stuff. But leaving reviews and subscribing to it on Apple really does help push the podcast out. And I I love getting more people involved and aware uh, about these conversations and what we're learning about the world through these books and these amazing authors. Um, but yeah, other ways to support the podcast and what I'm doing, there's stuff down in the description below. Uh, I've self-published some books. They're over at TheRewiredSoul.com. You can become a patron. And uh, there's also an affiliate link down below for BetterHelp Online Therapy. As I mentioned in this episode, I have struggled with mental health issues most of my life. I am a recovering drug addict and alcoholic. And therapy is a huge, huge part of my life. And I personally use BetterHelp Online Therapy, which is extremely convenient. You use it, you know, on your phone or computer or whatever, and you could text your therapist uh, for sessions. You could do video chat or calls or whatever it is. And and one of the coolest things is if you don't like your therapist, you don't got to worry about some weird, awkward conversation. You just, boom, click a button. You can switch therapists. It's pretty neat. So if you want to check it out, check it out. But anyways, uh, again, free way to support the channel uh, or the podcast rather is to, yeah, just uh, follow, subscribe uh, and share it, share it on social media with your friends, anybody who you think might be interested in some of these conversations we have, like the ones uh, we just had today with, with Brian Earp about love drugs. All right. But anyways, anyways, I hope you guys are enjoying uh, two episodes a week during the month of June. If, uh, if you guys really like it, I'll keep doing it because I have so, so, so many episodes already recorded all right but anyways that's all we got for this episode and i will see you next wednesday with a brand new author talking about another amazing book so i'll talk to you then and until then have a great rest of your day weekend whatever day you're listening to this i hope it is wonderful <laughs>